they look at UPS workers and what they want. They look at UAW, they look at high profile, like the writers and the actors. They look at the sports sector being unionized. They look at all of these things and they say, hey, I want that too. And young people are not afraid. They're just like, let's do this. Let's do this now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Larry Williams Jr. Larry is the founder of UnionBase, a tech and education hub for unions. He was also co-founder and first president of the Progressive Workers Union. Before that, Larry worked for the Teamsters and the Sierra Club, among other progressive organizations. He knows a lot about unions within the progressive ecosystem, something which has been picking up steam of late. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Larry Williams Jr. of Union Base. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Larry, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Larry Williams Jr. I'm a former union organizer, a union president, and now the founder of UnionBase. Can you give me a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? What kind of family, location, education, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so I grew up both on the East Coast and in the West. I started off in, in the Connecticut area and ended up in Arizona later on in D.C., where I went to college, University of the District of Columbia. My first job was, like I said, organizing in the labor movement. So I really got my education practicing the trade, working on these national campaigns to organize workers. And that's what I really fell in love with and and became a big part of my professional journey. But, you know, along the way, I I took on executive director roles at an environmental nonprofit, environmental labor nonprofit, and also at a 501c3 c4 called Black Men Vote. But my work has taken me back to the labor movement in the last, I'd say, couple of years as the labor movement has taken off. Was it the Teamsters after that for you? Yeah. Yeah. I worked at the Teamsters for almost seven years, five years in the organizing department, and about two and a half years in the training and development department, working on history projects, writing a book about the Teamsters, kind of digging into the files that I think most people have never seen. Pretty interesting stuff. What kind of things did you learn there at the Teamsters? The organizing job, it really, I'd say, taught me the tricks of the trade. The practice of organizing a union is one that is both technical and emotionally challenging for the workers. For the organizers, it's a very intense, time-consuming activity, one that a lot of unions still struggle to be good at. It can be very resource-intensive. My side of it was on the tech side. So I did 
the data and sort of finding where folks are so you can engage them outside of the workplace. What happens is a lot of workers get intimidated in the workplace by unscrupulous employers who don't want their workers to organize. This isn't all employers, but some employers do this. And so the best way to be able to organize successfully is to be able to talk to workers one-on-one, explain to them what being in the union is, what their options are, things like that. So my job was to find those folks and make it as cost-efficient and time-efficient as possible to win those campaigns. You said you wrote a book. What was that about? It was a very short book. It was called The Teamster History of Organizing. I think you can still find that online. And what I did was I dug into the archives of the Teamsters from the early years, from 1901. So 1901 and 1920, the Teamsters was originally two unions. I know one of them was the Team Drivers Union. I can't remember the other one, but they basically combined into one union, right? So I wanted to explore what unionizing was 120 years ago. What did it look like? You know, what were the workers going through? There's a lot of similarity. Obviously, it was a lot more intense and we're starting to see sort of a bringing back of child labor and things like that, uh, like it was in the early industrial days. But, you know, the, the Teamsters really started as a horse and carriage union, you know, team drivers, right? That was what the, the whole premise was. But the union leaders from the early 1900s were like teenagers. They were like 15, 16 years old. There's internal Teamster magazines from back in the day. So they actually have records of this. The other thing is that the Teamsters had some locals that were all black. They had some locals that were led by you know, black union leaders. It was very interesting to see that even though there was segregation, there was some African-American leadership even in the early 1900s. So the Teamsters have incredible record keeping. And in fact, they have a Teamsters archive at George Washington University that we launched in the mid-2000s to kind of record some of this stuff. What most people know is about Jimmy Hoffa. And trust me, they've got some interesting stuff on Jimmy Hoffa that folks have probably never seen that we kind of made it to some like really interesting footage of his negotiations, of his interviews and things like that in the building. The same office that he worked in is still there, pretty much exactly the same as it was back in the day. But I think for me, that's very interesting, especially his early bargaining. It taught me a lot about how to negotiate, how to organize. But what was really interesting for me beyond that was that organizing, bargaining, all these things were a practice and trade developed by the teachers over 100 years ago, even before Jimmy Hoffa came. That sounds like a pretty interesting job. What led you to leave it? And was it Sierra Club that you went to after that? Well, I had this dream before I got into the training development department when I was still organizing. I saw that there was a lot of sort of lost leads where people wanted to join a union. They had no idea how to do so. And the fact that I didn't know anything about the labor movement before I got to the team just told me that a lot of other people didn't as well. So to this day, what's happening is a lot of people want to be in the labor movement, I believe. Gallup said something like 65% of Americans are supportive of unions. But the reality is it's still a very niche thing, even though people might have a grandfather or something like that that's in the union. Most people are not in the union, right? And so I think my dream was to found union base, which is what I'm running now, tech company specifically for unions. And that was what I was always working towards. I left the Teamsters in pursuit of that. But on the way there, you know, when you're doing a startup, you have to work a job while you're doing that. So one of my mentors actually told me about a job at the Teamsters, which was labor and coal coordinator, right? And it sounded very strange to me. What is this? Well, the, the Sierra Club is the largest environmental organization and environmental nonprofit in the United States. And they were trying to create a labor program, right? 
the idea that if you engage workers who are directly impacted by the shutdown of fossil fuels, the barrier to fighting climate change will be lowered and workers will be a part of that process of changing the economy and be participants and benefits in that work. So I did that for a number of years. And while I was there, I started a union called Progressive Workers Union. It's now expanded to Greenpeace, 350.org, Union of Concerned Scientists, and a number of other organizations. And the union is really strong, got really great membership, really great leadership. I've always kind of stayed close to the labor movement. And even when I took on an executive director role at Black and Vote, we ended up making a partnership with the NFL Players Association. That was about eight months ago or more recent than that. So, you know, I think the labor movement is something I've always stayed pretty close to. Tell me about starting up that union, Progressive Workers Union. What made you want to do it? And did you find resistance to it? And just tell the story of that a bit. Sure. I mean, starting Progressive Workers Union, first of all, there was a union there already. It was called John Muir Local 100. It was, I'd say, a lot smaller, a lot less folks were involved. They had a leadership, but it just wasn't working like a powerful union would. So I gave total credit to the folks who were in leadership before. It's not an easy thing to run an independent union. And when I say independent, it's not affiliated with the larger union that would give it resources or a federation like the AFL-CIO, right? We were the leadership. We didn't pay dues to anyone else. Our membership dues went into a bank account and we used that to service members. And so Sierra Club is a very massive organization. So it has two headquarters, like a legislative office in D.C. and then regular headquarters in Oakland, California. So the Oakland office had its own union called the Sierra Employee Alliance, SCA. And then John Muir covered workers everywhere else. What happened was I kind of noticed really quickly that the union itself wasn't behaving like other unions that had seen or worked at. And so I started talking to one of our coworkers and she basically identified for me that there was this diversity, equity, and inclusion program in the organization that they spent quite a bit on, but didn't really have any effect on how the organization worked, right? It was kind of just like spending money and having conversations. Yet, I felt like there was definitely an imbalance in pay. There was just a lot of problems in the organization. So I started talking to coworkers. So did my, my partner in organizing, co-founder, we should say. And the process of building up the union, it really took about six months to a year. We talked to almost every member of the union. One of the first things we did once we got organized, we started having regular organizing committee or leadership meetings. I put to a vote to change the name from John Muir to Progressive Workers Union because I wanted to reflect the values of the membership. Most folks view themselves as progressives, so that was kind of a no-brainer. Got a lot of resistance to that, but the vote showed, you know, we got 66%, which is two-thirds of the vote, exactly what we needed to pass it. And that kind of lighted fire under membership. Like, okay, we can do something, right? That's the whole point of organizing is like educating your coworkers that they have power and that they can use it in smart ways. From there, we kind of took down all the issues that all of our coworkers had, whether it was pay, health insurance, job security. I mean, it was a ton of stuff. It was an endless list. And my, my point of view was that we can do it all. The organization was capable of handling that change. And it had been over 100 years without changing. And another big problem is that we had a whole bunch of chapter staff all over the country who are not in a union. Even though they worked for the same organization, the leadership treated them like they didn't work for the same organization, had a completely different pay scale, much lower. And they were going through a lot of abuse from the chapters. So it was a big organizing project to get them into the union as well. 
We went into a bargaining. I think the bargaining took like six or seven months. It was very intense. The leadership fought really, really hard to stop the unionizing process. I should say to stop it, there was a lot of disinformation going around from leadership about what our intentions were, what we wanted to do. But at the end of the day, a lot of mid-level management and even senior management was supportive of what we were trying to do because they realized we were trying to help the organization. And in the end, we ended up getting a really, really amazing contract that most of the nonprofit world looks at as sort of the gold standard in nonprofit contracts, but union contracts. It sparked a lot of organizing. PW is still getting flooded with interest to people who want to join. And a lot of other groups have joined PWU. And so I think that there was sort of a reckoning that needed to be had between environmental nonprofits and nonprofits in general and their employees. What the expectations are, this sort of mentality of you need to sacrifice to work for this organization as opposed to creating a long-term, sustainable type of job that people can stay in, grow, become experts, instead of treating them like they're disposable, right? And just getting young people to come in, burning them out, and then they leave. So it's still something that they're still working on, trying to perfect that. But I think the, the value of workers across the country has also evolved as it has within that organization. So you see that same push from workers as the balance of power has shifted to workers, and they've been enforcing that value. But we're trying to, I think, as a country, find that balance. Why do you think there was so much resistance in a big progressive environmental nonprofit that had such a big name and, and I assume, uh, a lot of aligned values? Well, I mean, I think most progressive organizations think of themselves as just that progressive, right? It's sort of a them, not me mentality, right? Like, we're not to blame here. I mean, and besides that, I mean, if you look at it from a very neutral perspective, you can see that someone coming in and telling you that things need to change or things aren't right, it naturally feels threatening. And I've also been in that seat as an executive director where my staff unionized. And in, in the case where I was executive, in that particular case, my staff didn't really have a good sense of what it means to be in a union, I think. So they're feeling that power for the first time and they kind of take it too far when they don't have to. That's the balance. Management it can be very nervous about what workers will do when they have empowerment. And it's just thinking that if they have a seat at the table, that they're going to wreck things or that they are not going to understand or they're going to treat us badly. And then sometimes with the workers, I think that they can view every action that management takes as an attack on their power, right? And so it's like finding each other. That's what the bargaining process is. Sitting at the table and having conversation for the first time on equal footing and saying, where can we actually um, improve the relationship, improve the experience, and, and be a better company, do a better organization? So I think progressive organizations, they've never had that challenge to their integrity. And when they get that, they feel very much afraid. There's a lot at stake for them in some ways more than it is for a corporate company. Because a corporate company, a lot of times, what they'll do is just you know overreact. And there's nobody to punish that behavior because the laws aren't as strong. Whereas in a progressive movement, you don't want to be called the employer that screwed over those employees because then it's just harder for you to do business. Yeah. What are the advantages and disadvantages to an independent union versus being part of one of the big internationals or big unions that are out there? Great question. I mean, I think independent unions require a lot more work, a lot more time invested. I mean, any any union membership, if you're part of any union, whether it's affiliated with the larger union or if it's independent, there is some work for you to do. 
because you want to be an active membership, go to your meetings, make sure you're voting on issues, organizing, building power. So that same work is necessary to independent union. The difference is affiliate unions tend to pay some per capita to the union they're affiliated with. So if you have an independent union, for example, you're affiliated with UAW, then you're paying them a monthly or bi-monthly fee. And then they'll get access to their strike funds. You might get some support, some legal support, some advice on your bargaining, somebody to sit the bargaining table. So there are things that come with being affiliated that you just don't get as an independent union. Now, if you're a group of independent workers, and this is what, you know, I'm counseling workers now who are on our platform who are trying to organize, you have options. You could organize yourselves into an independent union and affiliate later. Or you could wait to affiliate until you're ready to bargain or something like that. It's not like if you're uh, independent, you have to always remain independent. But I think the advantage for some people is that they feel like there's no one to tell them how to operate. You don't have to be under anyone else's bylaws and things like that. But what I tell folks is think about how much time you actually have to give to something, right? If you don't have a ton of time, oftentimes people work in a full-time job, they got family, kids, whatever, and they're organizing a union at the same time. This is the reality of most workers. If you and your group of workers at large can't spend an incredible amount of time doing this, it might be best to join an existing union or to affiliate your independent union with a large union. Now, if you're a bunch of folks who are experiencing labor movement, you know how to negotiate a contract, you feel like you can do it yourself, by all means, go independent. But I just don't recommend that for most people. In that case, I was experienced, and so I was able to transfer that experience to the union. And now they're doing it on their own. It's fine. You talked about representing a new generation of workers. There's a huge variation among workers in their power individually. If they are a political campaign worker that is uh, field staff, or if they're like a developer, a computer programmer who can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, does it matter? What's the lens that you would look at for organizing a tech enterprise versus like the Biden campaign or something? In terms of leverage? In terms of like, is a union equally necessary? Is it uh, a good fit? Um, how would you think, because there've been some efforts, which I haven't followed terribly closely to unionize campaign workers, to unionize some of the vendors in the political tech and labor tech space. What do you see going on there and what do you think is working well and isn't? Yeah, we could, we could talk a little bit about both because I mean, think about electoral campaigns, the sort of booming bus, big on election year or midterms and things like that. And so yeah, poor, on, they poor on all kinds of uh, fringe benefits and and job security and that's right. uh, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, that's right. You're sort of a temp or consultant in a way. And so, you know, I think that unionization, I think, is more flexible than people realize sometimes, even union leadership, because really you want your contract and the structure of your union to reflect the industry that you're in. Of course, the long-term goal is to change the industry for the better, right? And a lot of contracts do that. They force higher standards. They force employers to treat employees like, to treat it like it's a career versus a job, right? Something that people can grow at. And I think in the, in the electoral space, it's really important to be unionized, mainly because the way that electoral organizations treat the employees is that you're basically on call 24-7 because that's the nature of a campaign. And so in the same way that nonprofits can kind of go overboard in terms of their expectations, it's not that I'm saying that they shouldn't have 
those difficult work hours because that's what you expect coming into that industry. But what is the compensation for that, right? Do we get comp time? Is there some creative way that we can work together to make a better industry? And I don't think you have that voice as individual workers. There's a certain level of conversation you can't have unless you're organized. And that's the benefit for the employer is that workers can speak as one voice instead of a thousand or 500 voices. And there's some order to that conversation, right? And then if you're thinking about the tech world, I mean, I think you actually have an incredible amount of power being tech, uh, whether you're an AI or you're working for Google or Facebook, Meta, one of these companies, because the tech world is now really the infrastructure of everything that we do. And so those workers to be organized and actually putting forth policy proposals through their union, being a part of how working standards are made, because that's going to be the industry that employs so many millions of people in just the next couple of years because of AI, is really critical for them to be unionized and have a voice at the tip. Everybody thinks that unionization is just about more money, right? That's a nice benefit of it. But if you think about it, tech workers, that's not always the issue. A lot of times they make incredible money, but the jobs are super intense and you burn out really quickly. Maybe the culture is very toxic there and there's not a lot of way for you to express your voice. Rather than people having to quit and sue and become people who are protected by the government because they're leaking, create a process through the union where you can actually talk about these problems and get it fixed before they come to these problems. A lot of employers I've talked to are worried about losing the flexibility to get rid of employees who are underperforming if they have a collective bargaining unit between them and decisions. And then I, what I see often is even if they are unionized, they go, they sort of ignore the union and make changes almost right through them. What's wrong about that kind of thinking? Well, you know, I think both sides have some thinking to do here, right? And I say that because, you know, when you become unionized, the main thing that happens is that you can't be fired without just cause, meaning there just needs to be a legitimate reason why they're letting you go. Oftentimes what is put into contracts is a step grievance process. So this is an agreement between the employer and the union that says, for example, you get a warning for, you know, whatever set infraction is, maybe you showed up late every day or something like that. Hopefully it's not based on time because that's a very old school way of thinking about work, but let's just say that that's what it is. Maybe you get uh, step one is that there's a meeting between your union rep, so your steward and your manager, and they just have a conversation and they talk about why this has been happening, if there's a way to improve it. So I think the value of a union contract is that there are multiple steps before you actually get fired. It doesn't just happen like that, right? Now, I, I think that employers should embrace that as a way to potentially improve employee behavior as opposed to a restriction on their behavior. If there's some sort of illegal activity or just something that's like clearly bad, I don't think that there's anything that stops you from letting a worker go unless that's written in the contract, like gross misconduct or something like that. What about in situations where, let's say, the Sierra Club loses a lot of fundraising their fundraising goes down, they have a lot less money, they don't have the resources, they need to part with a thousand people, or they just don't have the money, or a hundred people, whatever. Or it's a software company uh, that had estimated that they would be able to support this many staff and they have to cut 30% of their workforce. Obviously, these are very hard situations for any enterprise, whether nonprofit or 
I mean, it's happened in the union movement itself. Sometimes they've had to shed staff because the system changed and they had less access to revenue. What ought to be done in that situation by the organization working with a unionized workforce? Yeah, I think historically what we've seen is that unions basically sit down with the employer and figure out how we can sort of share the pain, I guess, right, and make it more even across the table. There's a number of high-profile examples of this where the union basically sits down with the employer and says, all right, you have a $40 million deficit, whatever it may be. Let's look at the numbers together and see what sector is at same. Can we offer our members some voluntary layoffs? In some cases, you'll have a lot of employees that will accept that and say, you know what, I'm going to just step off. And that's much better for them personally and also for the employer from a public relations perspective. They're just axing 20, 30, 40 percent of your staff if you're quietly giving them these voluntary layoffs and things like that. So I think that there's a lot to be said about the ability to partner with your staff and your members to come up with a solution that works for both parties. Nobody likes for that to happen. That does happen. But it's much better if you actually have the option to work together. What's the founding story for Union Base? So you said it was an idea that you were incubating in your head for a while. What happened? How did you put it together? The long story short is that my vision is that there's, you know, over 20,000 unions in the United States, right, uh, of varying sizes. That's from the 100-member local up to the large regional that might have 50,000 members or more to the federation, the AFL-CIO. But a lot of the stuff that I've shared with you today is not common knowledge, right? <laughs> People don't know what union they're in quite often. They don't know what union they would join per their industry, per their sector, per their region in the country. And so I think my main goal is to educate people about what unions are, why they're necessary, how they work, things like that. And I've been able to really be blessed to have lots of conversations like this all over the world and sort of share what the American labor movement looks like and learn about the global labor movement. So the platform itself was the, uh, supposed to be an access point. So the way I went about it was to create a list of all the unions that exist in the United States. It took a couple of years to really accumulate that list. Created a search engine, which is still up now. You can see that now, unionbase.org. Of unions, but I, I think that that didn't go far, far enough because, like I told you, when workers try to organize, there's a lot of tension there, and workers need a way to communicate privately. So we created a private search component to the site where people can do posts and communicate with their coworkers privately. And then there's also an element where folks can get updates on the labor movement when they join the platform. I think where the platform is evolving to is my many conversations with the labor movement has been that. A lot of unions are, I think, very much focused on their own particular battle. They believe in solidarity, of course, right? But you see like UAW, for example, they had this huge fight and people come to their aid or the locals and internationals come to the aid and join the fight. But to, on a day-to-day -day basis, most unions are focused on their bargaining, their organizing, their internal politics and elections. There's a lot of things that are happening within a union that prevent them from being sort of outward facing. So the platform, I think, is trying to improve workers' ability to access these unions, right? So we want to be the in-between point. And what's happened is workers have started to come on the platform and say, hey, we want to join union. We'll do the back-end research for them, and we'll connect them with the correct union in their region. And there's usually multiple options of who they could join based on you know, the type of workers they represent or 
if they have the ability or resources to organize right now. So we try to simplify that process for them. So our vision is to scale that up, make some small parts of that automated as easy as possible, and then also even create access to existing union jobs for folks who want to get a job that is already represented by it. So those are the main premises of the platform. You've sort of talked about the vision. Where are you along the path to creating that? Could you give me some metrics for like how, how many, what exactly have you got going so far? How many people are using it? How's it doing? And how's it received out there by the unions, by workers, by employers, things like that? Yeah. Well, when we first launched back in 2015, it was very quiet. We did a lot of beta testing and allowing folks to sort of give us early feedback. We did the lean startup methodology. In fact, we were covered in the lean startup series, which was really fun. Gave us some some insight on how to start a, a startup properly. The challenge, I think, is that the labor movement is not really an entrepreneurial place for the most part, right? Maybe within your union, within your local, you could be entrepreneurial with different types of campaigns. But there's a distrust of technology. There's a sort of paranoia of like, what are you doing with my data? Why do you want the data? Yada, yada. But I'm seeing a change in that attitude, honestly, in the last couple of years. That's why I've rededicated myself to this mission. It was kind of just like running on its own. So we've done a couple of things. One, we launched a magazine a couple years ago called Workplace Leader. And it teaches workers in the workplace how to be stewards, how to be workplace leaders, organize like I did, you know, support your membership, how to be a leader, time management, all the things that you need to run a union. We've had great success with getting internationals and locals to subscribe to this and send it out to their membership. So that's one thing. Another thing is we get a couple thousand folks per month just coming to the site to search for unions. I think we've probably had somewhere between 800,000 and a million people look at the site since we first launched. But I think now we're somewhere around 1,500, 2,000 unique visitors that come in just like looking for you. Every month we get a few workers that are like, hey, we want to find a union. And then I'll literally have my team go and try to connect them with the correct union. I may even provide direct counsel to the workers on how they should organize, what are the tricks of the trade, and things like that. What we're doing now, though, two things. We're intensely having conversations with unions about how this tech can support their work, how they can integrate it into their work. That's both unions here in Canada and overseas. And then secondly, we're redeveloping the technology with all the new advancements that have happened in the last year. Because when we first started, a lot of the stuff didn't exist. I mean, AI existed, but it was very rudimentary. And so now I think the technology has come a long way. So we're doing a lot of redevelopment to try to meet the needs of these workers and the unions at the same time and create very simple tools that will actually help with the organizing and help make that connection more real. When you say we, is there staff for union base? Is it just you? What's the nature of the organization itself currently? Right. It's got me and three other folks who work pretty diligently on it. We have a CTO, publication director, and uh, operations director. We also bring in folks who act as writers for our issues quite often. Guest writers who are in the labor movement and know it very well. We don't try to do that ourselves. And then whenever we scale up, we also have our developers who do our development. That's the most challenging part of the work, right? It's like building a platform and supporting it. Most people go out and I think get VC to try to scale up quickly, but we're such a hybrid. We're part tech, part human solution. And so we build, we have to build more with intention, especially since 
we're serving a labor movement. And like I said, there's so much suspicion around technology. You have to build the trust before you can build the actual product. How have you funded it so far? Wow. Great question. So the first, I'd say three or four years was purely out of pocket. I was like working a full-time job and just kind of put money into it. Over the last four years now, the majority of our profits, which have been revenues that have been put back into the business really comes from the magazine that serves unions around the country and the services that we provide for unions, whether it's building websites for them, launching tools, whatever they need in terms of tech services. These are the things that keep it afloat. But my hope is that we can evolve to being primarily funded by these organizing tools that we create for the right? I, I mean, and really also from direct investment for these unions, because the fact is the labor movement is in awesome financial shape, right? I mean, it came out of the pandemic, literally billions of dollars. And there was a great report on this, but they've basically been just sitting on that money as opposed to using it offensively to try to organize more workers. So we're trying to sort of change the vibe in terms of how these, these unions go about it and make them think from a more offensive perspective, growth plan. It seems like a really important sell to become a kind of a joint project of the union movement for someone like you. And there are some other tech organizations that have found funding partial or, or complete from unions. What stands in the way of, of that happening for you? Because it seems like if there are that kind of resources, you're on a shoestring comparatively right now and could be a lot more helpful if significant dollars were put in and, and helped you scale this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what I've learned, and this is for anyone who's trying to do what we do, you know, I welcome people to come into the space and, and try to innovate. That's always a good thing. Number one, foundations. What I found over the last, I guess, 10 years is that foundations have kind of hesitated to fund things that are labor related directly. I mean, there might be some joint projects, but they usually don't do work or organizing stuff. I don't know the exact answer for that. My hypothesis is that they feel like the labor movement has its own money and labor movement is very political. There's a lot of stuff there. But I was asking you about the labor unions directly, and you've even worked for a number of them for sometimes substantial amounts of time. What happens if you, you pitch them this? Have you tried that? I assume you have. What happens? Yeah. Well, I, I use foundations first because I think that what people's natural thinking is like, isn't this like a, a nonprofit? And we're not nonprofit. We're for profit. Because when it comes to tech and scaling, it's very difficult to stay alive when you're a nonprofit organization. Are they allergic to the fact that you're organized as a for-profit, the unions? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that they work with uh, for-profit organizations. There is some thinking within the labor movement that is, I think, not a fan of entrepreneurship, right? I mean, and because of the billionaires like Elon Musk and others who... You know, there's this reputation of entrepreneurs being the sort of egotistical, power-hungry guys who... But you're an entrepreneur and you're a union president or ha were. I mean, there's small entrepreneurship that is extremely important to moving the country forward on, in every direction. I assume that there are forward-thinking leaders that understand that aspect to entrepreneurship as opposed to sort of giant corporations that maybe once upon a time were entrepreneurial in the small sense, but now are in a whole nother world. Yeah. I think the best way to, to understand the thinking of the labor movement or something like this is to compare them to VC, right? 
when VC invests in something, they're looking for 100x. And they're willing to take a risk, a smart risk, and put money in something in rounds. They do a pre-seed, seed, ABC round, right? And you're going, you're talking to investors and you're saying, this is why this is a good bet. And this is what my team looks like, yada, yada, right? This is what our market looks like. This is why we think we could scale. A conversation with the union has to be more focused on how you can directly support their union, right? What can you do? Because what they're paying you is dues money. So that money is coming directly from members' pocket. That's somewhere down the line, it came from a member most times, you know? And so unions are very careful with their funds. And a lot of times there's a lot of political roadblocks to funding something that is tech because A, they usually don't understand it. And this is not talking smack. I mean, tech is a completely different industry than the labor movement. But like I told you, there's all those priorities that come before something like tech. There's organizing, there's bargaining, there's all these different things that, and then tech is usually way at the bottom of that list. What you did see though, and this is really promising, is that the AFL-CIO, they actually now have 60 member unions, they've raised their dues, and they created a tech-centric part of the AFL-CIO specifically to address these types of things. So I'm going to say without revealing internal matters, there are a number of unions that we're having serious conversations with about funding our efforts. But again, what you would see from a regular startup is that they get a couple million dollars they get started from the beginning. And then they're encouraged to, to build something and sell, right? And because that failing is a lesson they can go on to create another startup and be successful. That's not the way the labor movement works. The, the labor movement usually, if you fail, then it's like, oh, well, they did that thing and it failed and it's clear that this doesn't work. You know? So it's really just showing people with success. And that's what I've done time and time again is that as I build things, PW is a very successful union that we founded. And a lot of times the, the campaigns we started at Teamsters became very successful. And it wasn't until we were able to win those campaigns that we got more resources. So I think finally our organization has matured to a place where now we can warrant those big infusions of cash to do what we're trying to do and scale up. But luckily we are there and we are getting that support soon. One of the ways that people might handle this would be like to give the labor movement that funds it a stake in the enterprise so that they would feel like they had ownership in it and their dollars could both be producing what you're trying to do with the union base and also that they would be able to capture any profits if there were some, even though that doesn't seem like, like what is necessarily driving you. I have talked to a number of entrepreneurs in the labor area that have built tech. I don't know if you're aware of Jamie White with Unit or Logan Hive with Frank, but there are different platforms that they've built. And then Action Network, I thought that they had a close relationship with unions in, in some of their founding. I think there are others as well. Have you seen examples of kind of business models and collaboration between unions on funding tech that you can look to? Yeah. So unit app actually took VC and they had a really good um, kind of uh, hypothesis around why they were taking VC and, and all of that. So that's, I think that's searchable line. Folks are interested about that. I think give Frank took VC as well. And I think that they actually shut down recently, um, which I'm sure they have a really great story and education and learning behind why that happened. And then Action Network, their major supporter is the AFL-CIO and they're a nonprofit. So it's a bit of a different scenario. 
So, you know, you got to think about it. I'm I'm a independent young guy. I started at 21. I launched from my bedroom, literally. And I've had this vision of what I think is possible. And most folks in the labor movement are above the age of 50, 40, 50. I'm getting up there myself. I'm not quite up there now. I'm 30. <laughs> I've seen your TEDx talk and I can see that there's a couple of years on you since that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting my years on. But so, so I think what's been unique is that, you know, the sort of organic way that we've grown, the starts and stops because of, you know, frankly, I've had to work jobs to do this, you know. But I think what's exciting is that now where I am in my career, where the labor movement is, seems to align, like the newer generation is finally starting to get interested in this. Workers are, the balance of power has finally shifted somewhat. And the labor leaders understand that it's time for change. So I'm excited about what's going to happen probably this year. So if you were talking to the political director or the head of, of a union, what would the pitch be? Mm. Well, I wouldn't tell you exactly what I would tell them because it would probably depend on who that union is, where they are, and what they need to make their union better. But I would likely share my story just like I did with you so they actually know who I am and that I have that credibility and the capability to create what I'm saying I can create, right? We're not just blowing smoke. And then I would talk to them about our vision and see if our vision is aligned, right? Like, are you interested in connecting with more workers who want to organize? Uh, are you interested in making sure your members are more connected to each other and more connected to you? I think most importantly, are you willing to put the investment in to make that happen? Because without the money, you really can't do much of anything. Why, why should something like Union Base be located externally in a organization rather than housed in the AFL-CIO or something like that? Uh, you know, on a long enough time frame, that could happen. I mean, it could end up being a product of the AFL, but I think, you know, innovation and things like that are probably best suited outsider and not just for the labor movement. If you look at other companies that started independently and end up being owned by some big corporation or something, a lot of times it was impossible to start something like that inside of one of these organizations because of the bureaucratic hurdles. Being outside, what it benefits is that a lot of times these unions, they have a lot of their resources put into any one of those categories that I mentioned. And what they like about us is that they can give us the parameters of what they're trying to accomplish, or we can do it really quickly in a lightweight way. Whereas if it's the, and they can still have input on the process. If it's done internally, it's got to go through all kinds of bureaucracy before it gets to the actual complete. It may not look like what they originally envisioned. Whereas as we've built, we've learned how to take in what they want, turn it around really quickly, and then produce it specifically for that. It's kind of our specialty. So if someone's listening to you talk about this and they're interested, what kind of help would be most valuable to you? Uh, depends on who they are. Are we talking about a union? or It could be a funder, could be a union, could be someone interested in unionizing their progressive enterprise. What would you want people to know? Well, any of those folks can join the site. And if you join the site, you're going to get weekly and monthly updates on the label. So that's always a good thing just to come on the site and hear what's happening. We share bargaining updates, strike updates, things like that. Um, if you're a funder, you know, let's talk and let's see if our values are aligned because that's the most important thing. It's, it's really not just, will you give us some money? I mean, you can get some money for uh, an <laughs> organization that's completely anti-union, but then we lose, all, lose all of our credibility, right? So, you know, if our values are aligned, let's talk and see what that might look like. If you're a union, let's talk about, like I said, the vision 
that we are building. Let's see if there's alignment. Can we learn from each other? Um, and then in terms of, I think most importantly, yeah, any of those folks you mentioned was the workers, right? Because that's at the end of the day what this is all about. So if you're a worker and you're considering joining a union, you know, join the site. If you join as a non-union worker, the first question I ask you when you join is, are you a member of the union? You'll be joining as private. And what you can do is you can either post on my page on Union Base, or you can send us a message directly to the platform and we can give you some advice on how to join a union and hopefully direct you to the correct group or even provide you with some resources that you need to organize. It's a lot of different conversations we're having on any given day. So try to support everyone who comes by. Even if we're not the right people to support, then we'll put them in the right direction. Cool. What should I have asked you that I failed to? Wow. What most people ask me is why the labor movement? You could ask me that. I grew up paying attention to the labor movement. I read as a kid about Samuel Gompers or early people running unions. It's in the family for me in on both sort of both grandparents' families. And I studied later, some labor history in college too. So I, I have an interesting perspective, which is sort of an ideological affinity for unions and also as former person running a software company and also watching some friends in public institutions deal with unions that were maybe not operating in the best of faith, a complex view of what works and what doesn't work. I think we're going through a real change right now in attitudes towards unions broadly. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see happening now with respect to public opinion and worker opinion about unions that's different. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like support for unions has kind of always been high. <laughs> but I mean, unions have suffered a extensive campaign against them from the beginning, right? There's always been an opposition and sometimes it's been violent and sometimes it's been nefarious and sometimes it's been political. It's always been a battle, but there is a resurgence in union activity in attitudes among young people towards unions. I mean, there's something going on the last number of years. We can read it in the news. Can you put your finger on why that's happening and what is changing? Yeah. I mean, all that is true. I mean, there's been a concerted attack on unions. I believe in the seventies, there was a paper that came out specifically about attacking unions in every area that exists. So media, uh, education, top to bottom, right? And what we saw was both an attack on public sector unions and traditional unions outside of the public sector, which has resulted in a decline in union membership, both the propaganda and the legal attacks. And then, of course, there's been an all-out workplace attack on workers being in unions, captive audience meetings, things like that. But what I mean to say is, despite all that, I think folks were always a fan of the labor movement, but they maybe had less faith in the labor movement's ability to bring them wins. And what's happened, especially since the pandemic, is that workers just have a fundamentally different view of work and, you know, having maybe having stayed at home for a couple of years, changed people's perspective on what it means to go into the workplace every day, what they actually value is important in their time, like in their families and things like that, what they should be making in terms of getting paid. And also the opportunity of, a, of this new generation to make money in a lot of different ways. Unfortunately, I, I, I'm not saying this is a great thing, but when people are using some platforms to make money that are unscrupulous, but then there's like all these little contingent jobs 
where you can just deliver food or food where you can live. You can do YouTube. I mean, there's a hundred ways you can make money more than working a nine to five. So it's like, what type of value are you bringing as an employer? People used to stay at jobs for 40, 50 years. That doesn't happen anymore. People stay at jobs for a couple of years and they move on to the next thing. I would add that I think in a lot of cases, employers have been shedding jobs and hasn't made much news, especially in the tech sector. And so people are applying, 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 and not getting opportunities that they find valuable. So they just look at work a completely different way. And I think the labor movement offers an opportunity for them to do better. They look at UPS workers and what they want. They look at UAW, they look at high profile, like the writers and the actors. They look at the sports sector being unionized. They look at all of these things and they say, hey, I want that too. And young people are not afraid. They're just like, let's do this. Let's do this now. I, I find that even the folks organizing a platform and some of the new sectors around tech, they know that they're bringing in hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and they want a piece of that pie. Now, with that said, Roy Bahad has done a lot of writing on this from Bloomberg Beta about CEOs' responsibility in terms of response to that, the opportunity as employers, what they can do to sort of better meet that challenge. It doesn't have to be a complete all-out award. Like I was talking about earlier, it could be a shared change, but you have to look at it with an open eye. And like, we basically have to, from both sides, come at this and say, this is labor. This is what we're bringing to the table. This is the type of relationship we want to have. And I think management has to do the same, recognize that things have changed and try to work with those workers and those unions and try to figure out a scenario that works. Do you have any thoughts about why Trump gets as much support as he does among unionized workers? Yeah, I have some ideas. If you look back to when Trump first came on the political scene, I think a lot of labor leaders were pretty shocked that you know, white working class folks were supporting him because he was on the other side of the aisle and a lot of you support Democrats. But this is kind of just a general statement on Trump, right? He captured a certain thinking, not just of white folks, but because there's lots of brown and black folks who support Trump as well, <laughs> right? It's the sense that we're the little guy and we want somebody who fights for the little guy and that the system is out to get you, right? And so he tapped into that where the labor movement wants to actually have that way of talking to workers. And I think that if you're looking at the steel mills, if you're looking at the coal mines, you're looking at these folks in West Virginia and places like that, that are frankly forgotten, regardless of who you're talking about, black, white, whatever, those towns are really, really the forgotten parts of America. And I think that's where Trump is really brilliant. He was like, I'm going to go to those places. I'm going to appeal to those people, even though he's this either a fake billionaire, a real billionaire, whatever he is, he's able to tell, he's able to convince them that the system's out to get them. He's on their side, right? That appeals to, to union guys who are already kind of in that mindset. Um, and then there's also, you know, racial dog whistles and stuff that goes along with it as well. Do you, I mean, do you think the union movement generally has done a good job of combating that? I want to be fair answering that. Some union leaders support Trump. I mean, that's just a fact, right? Not not all of them, not even most of them, but there are some that do support him because we're in America and one half of the country is supporting him. It's only inevitable that a lot of people in the labor movement will be on that side. I guess if you bore the question down a little bit, the question would be like, at large, does the labor movement support Trump? I say probably not at the higher levels of leadership. Maybe some locals do, 
but most of the major unions have endorsed Biden. Biden's been extremely pro-union, which we expected him to be a few years ago. I did a video on that, like most pro-union president ever or something like that a couple of years ago. And I got a lot of hate mail from union folks about that. They were like, who do you think you are? And a lot of like racism and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, to me, it's not even about Trump. It's not about Trump or Biden. It's like, what exactly can the president do for unions? Well, the PRO Act, the Employee Free Choice Act, these are legislative pieces that could fix the holes in labor law that allow workers to be intimidated, fired for organizing, right? Who's willing to actually sign that? I think Biden would sign that. He hasn't done much on talking about it. But what he has done, Henry Lardy Walsh, the Secretary of Labor, is actually make it a lot better for workers. He's stood behind them. There's some falters like the railway strike where I thought that they've done a better job. But generally, Biden has done a lot of great work for workers since the pandemic and working with the nurses in late days of the pandemic. Well, Larry, it's been really great to talk to you, to get to know you a little bit. Is there anything else you want to say? We're really grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. This was a really great conversation, and I'd love to come back if you ever have me. Sounds good. That was Larry. He is at unionbase.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.